Welcome, friends. Uh, my name is Riley. I'm the pastor of the church. It is a great joy to have you here. We're going to be reading from John chapter 15 this morning, verse 12 to 15. And we are going through a series called Sanctifying the Ordinary. And we've been looking at various topics. So normally as a church, we preach through a book of the Bible and we spend a long time doing that. We just finished up 1 Peter a while back. Now we've got this topical series. In August, we will start ascending the heights of the greatest letter in the greatest book of the Bible, Romans. Uh, so that will be a great journey. It's going to be awesome. Uh, but we've got a few topical things in between then. And today we're going to deal with a topic which is basic to life, necessary to life, vital to life, uh, but one that we need to figure out, what does it look like for a Christian? What does it look like to sanctify it? That word means to, to make it holy or to set it uh, apart. Uh, what, what does God think we should do about this topic? And that, the topic today is friendships, sanctifying the ordinary friendships. So would you read with me? Well, I'll read it to you. John chapter 15, verse 12 to 15. This is the word of God. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends. If you do what I command you, no longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what, the, what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. Let me pray for us. Our God and Father, I ask that you may bless the reading and the preaching and the applying of your holy word this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Recently, I was on a flight from Accra, Ghana to Dubai. And on this flight, I, I was pretty tired. It was the end of my long trip in Liberia. I didn't really want to talk to anyone. I had my headphones in. Um, I was in one of those extra legroom seats because I'm giant and those planes are tiny. And this guy came on. So I thought I had the road to myself. I'm like, this is pretty sweet. And then right at the end, this guy comes along. And uh, nice looking guy, you know, sporty, athletic looking guy. But... I was like, I don't know if I have the faith to have a conversation right now. <laughs> anyway, I had my headphones in. I'm just getting ready for takeoff. And then he started chatting with the, you know how the air hostesses, they have to sit right there. And so if you're in one of those seats, they're right there. And you're like, oh, should I talk or not? And often I just kind of look away because even though I like people, sometimes I really don't like small talk at times. And anyway, he starts chatting with her and wondering why the flight is an hour less than it used to be. And she was saying it's because of all wind and flight patterns, etc. And I, and I was like, oh, this is kind of interesting. So I joined in the conversation. And, and that began like a, a little a moment, uh, the, this moment where now he was chatting with her and I'm chatting with her and him. And then he found out he's a, a Lebanese guy that lives in Accra, Ghana. And it was interesting because he was, you know, didn't look Ghanaian. Uh, Ghana is West Africa. Uh, and he found that hard growing up as, as a Lebanese guy in a very African world. And, and the flight steward, she was from Kyrgyzstan. I mean, 
I've never met anyone from Kyrgyzstan before. Uh, she was lovely. And, and then, turns out there was an Aussie uh, flight hostess on... Is that what you call them these days? I don't know. What do you call them? Air hostess, steward, something. Anyway, she was on there as well. And so then she joined in and they were getting us drinks and they were going up the back and getting us chocolate from first class. And it was good. It was great. And we're chatting and sharing life and stories and all these things. And then we get to the end of the flight and, uh, you know, we pack our bags, get all our things ready. And this bright, bubbly, super excited Kyrgyzstani woman's like, so are you guys going to share details? Are you going to share each other's numbers? And I'm like, Oh, no. I mean, I didn't say that. But in my head, I'm like, no, why? Why on earth would you do that? Uh, and I, did, I was too awkward. I didn't even turn around to look at what uh, my friend, my, my maybe friend, um, from Lebanon was thinking. And uh, that moment highlights a real difference between how different cultures view trust and friendship. Uh, there's a book called The Culture Map by Erin Meyer, which highlights a lot of these differences. It's a fascinating book. And she picks up on some sociology uh, and talks about how some cultures are peach cultures and some cultures are coconut cultures. Uh, Australians, by general, are peach cultures. That means we're soft on the outside, so very friendly, uh, ready to share, ready even to share personal details, what's going on in our life. But then it doesn't take too long and you hit the shell. And it's like, I'm done. I'm good. Like, I will share everything about my life, but I won't let you actually in. Coconut cultures, which are more different parts of the world, are more coconut. So, like, uh, China, um, Iran, I believe, Africa, places like that, where actually, although they might be friendly and whatever, there is a harder shell. It's harder to get in. But once you're in, you are family and friend for life. And I believe that this lady was most likely looking at us going, well, you have gone to a deep personal level of sharing, therefore you must be friends, and therefore you want to remain friends. Whereas I'm going, I'm just, that was nice, I'm good. <laughs> I've got no room for you in my life and I have no desire. It shows the difference between how different cultures view friendship and what that actually looks like. What it means for us as a local church is that we need to discern friendship really well. Because I believe as a church, we are a very friendly church. We excel in being welcoming and friendly. But because we're by nature a peachy culture, that doesn't necessarily mean we're actually good at being friends and that we're actually inviting people into our friendship circle. Now, we are a growing church as well. There are lots of new people coming, which is wonderful, and we love having new people. But it puts a challenge and a strain on friendships and what it actually means to have deep and lasting and intimate friendships. Not only that, we live in Parramatta, where 25% of people that live in Parramatta have been in, Par in Australia for less than five years. So 25% of people in our city, or 27%, have left their home, left their friendship circles, left all their high school mates, left all their college mates, left their, potentially their parents and left have brought them with them, and now here they are in Parramatta. And then the rest of Parramatta, 53% of Parramattians, were born overseas as well. So potentially half of our city doesn't have all of their closest and longest networks with them here in the country and are starting afresh. 
Then you mix all that in there. It's not just like there's one culture, but there's many, many cultures. There's 11% Chinese, 11% Indian, a high number, nearly 3 or 4% South Korean. In the last five years, 3,500 Nepalese people moved into Parramatta. Went up from 400 Nepalese to 3,500 in five years. All bringing different cultures, all bringing different ways to build friendship, all bringing different ideas about what it means to be community and family. So it means that as a local church, we need the one authoritative and best source of truth on how to develop true Christian friendship, and we need God's Word. I wonder this morning if you are actively seeking to pursue and cultivate Christian friendships in your life? Are you actively seeking to pursue and cultivate more Christian friendships than you already have? And, especially for our members, but even new people that are slowly becoming members, are you seeking to do that here in this local church? My hope for today's message is to sanctify friendship and to help us to see what does God have to say about it and how we meant to go about doing it. And so much is at stake, I actually think, in this message. So much is at stake in how we do friendship because what we are trying to do as a local church is so dependent on how we relate to one another. It doesn't matter how big or how impressive or how unimpressive a church is. We are known as Christians if we love one another. Not our programs, not our services, not the quality, not even how friendly we are, but how much we love one another. We will never be a beautiful church unless we have deep and true Christian friendships in this place. So, so much is at stake. To look at this topic, I want us to look at three points today. The first point is desiring Christian friendship. Desiring Christian friendship. The second point is discerning Christian friendship. And the third is deepening Christian friendship. And we'll go through each one in turn. So firstly, let's look at desiring Christian friendship, sanctified friendship. One great example that you probably know of in the Bible is the example of Jonathan and David. Uh, you had David who killed Goliath and you know, became an anointed man of God, was soon to be the king of Israel. God had told David that. And then you've got Jonathan, the current king of Israel's son. And by God's grace, David and Jonathan became fast friends. Uh, they became quick companions. Uh, the, the, the text in 1 Samuel 18 says this, that after Saul is finished talking with David, it says, as soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. Uh, that's one way in which the Bible describes friendship. It's different to being friendly, isn't it? It's different to being mates in Australia. Loved him as his own soul. The souls were knit together. Slightly uncomfortable, I think, for two men in our highly sexualized world. We think, ooh, 
How can two men have their soul knit together? I thought that was just for husband and wife. Then in the next verse, verse 3, it says, Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. That means that Jonathan was so caught up in his friendship with David that he made promises, he made oaths that I will be with you no matter what. I'm not turning my back on you. Similar to a marriage covenant where we, you know, by God's grace, we say, this is what I will really do, and we follow it through. That's what Jonathan said to David. And then in chapter 20, after various things had happened where Saul's actually trying to kill David, so Jonathan... His dad is trying to kill his best mate. And, and Jonathan made David swear again by his love for him, for he loved him as he loved his own soul. You see this picture of friendship. And then, even though David was chased around all of Israel and outside of Israel by Jonathan's father Saul, where Saul tried to kill him, when David heard that Saul and Jonathan had died, he wasn't dancing, he wasn't clapping, he wasn't like, yes, my enemy's defeated. He, he was so grieved. He still even loved Saul because they did have a relationship that went sour, but he still loved Saul and he loved Jonathan. And then he said this, he, he, wrote, he wrote a song. It's a beautiful song. Actually, a bit funny, I tried to, as I was preparing this week, I was like, I'm gonna, it's a song, I'll try and sing it. So I just sat in my office and tried to sing one, 2 Samuel chapter 1, verse 26. I don't think it's going to make CCLI top 100, but it helped me to think of like, isn't this a beautiful thing? A man singing a song because of this experience he's had. And he says this, I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. Very pleasant you have been to me. Your love to me was extraordinary surpassing the love of women. Now we think, how is that, how is that possible? In our highly sexualized culture, our instinct is to think there must be homoerotic. There must have been more than friends. I don't think that's the case. I think we have such a deficient view of friendship, especially male friendship, that we can't conceive how another man could say that. We have such a high view of sexual intimacy and low view of relational intimacy outside of the bed that we're like, how does that work? But what, if you know David's life, he had a complicated marriage life. He had three wives. One of them hated him, <laughs> uh, you know, other one he, he obtained by very bad circumstances. It, it didn't always go well for David. But in Jonathan, he had a stable companion who he journeyed life with. He owed his very life to Jonathan because Jonathan warned him that his father was coming to kill him. There was a love he had for Jonathan that he actually hadn't experienced with any of his wives, with any of his sexual partners. So this is a picture of a biblical friendship, how the Bible wants to tell us this story so we can see what friendship can be like. But you may be thinking, well, that's nice, but is it really necessary? Is it required? You might also be thinking, I wish I had that, but I've never experienced it. You might think, well, it's important for some people to have relationships like that. But for me, I'm pretty happy with just kind of like low-level mates and friends, and I've got my family, and I'm pretty sweet. We wouldn't say that friendship is, some of us wouldn't say friendship is essential. Like if you said, I'm friends with someone, that doesn't really carry much weight. Like if you say, I'm married to, we go, okay, I get it. Like you're bound together, that's, that's forever. But if you say, I'm friends, it's like, well, what even is that? 
I mean, Facebook hasn't helped. Obviously, when, we friend, when we, it goes from a noun to a verb and we friend someone after we just met them, and, you know, what it really should say is acquaintance them or something like that. Like, I know this human being, or at least I know someone who knows them. That's what you're doing when you click friend. But throughout history, nearly every culture outside of ours has had this incredibly high view of friendship as a central and important part of life. Um, If you read, I don't read Greek philosophy, so I read people who read Greek philosophy, and and they talk about just how central it is in the works of Aristotle and Plato. Uh, They devoted books to the concept of friendship. J.C. Ryle, an Anglican bishop in the 19th century, he said this, This world is full of sorrow because it is full of sin. It is a dark place. It is a lonely place. It is a disappointing place. The brightest sunbeam in it is a friend. Friendship halves our troubles and doubles our joys. C.S. Lewis said this, If I had to give a piece of advice to a young man about a place to live, I think I should say, sacrifice almost everything to live where you can be near your friends. I know I'm very fortunate in that respect. Often people have, you maybe have those dinner conversations with people like, if you could live anywhere in the world, where would you want to live? And to be honest, I I actually always struggle with that because I'm like, I don't know where I am. I think I love where I am. I'm near my friends. And and I think C.S. Lewis captures that. St. Gregory in the fourth century, Gregory, I can't say he's Nazianzus or something like that. He's one of the church fathers. He said this, if anyone were to ask me, what is the best thing in life? I would answer, friends. I wonder, would you answer that? Throughout history and each culture, friendship is of central and high importance. Is it such for us? There's lots of studies looking at how friendship has decreased over the past hundred years, that people are lonelier, more connected but disconnected, all of that. How much do you desire true Christian friendship? But what is this friendship? What is the essence of like what, if it's not just someone you know, if it's not just someone you're mates with, what, what is a friend? Well, Drew Hunter in his book, Friendship, um, the, what is it, something that halves, whatever J.C. Ryle said, halves our troubles and doubles our joys. That's his subtitle for the book. He says, friendship is an affectionate bond forged between two people as they journey through life with openness and trust. So it requires, and he's pulling on Bible, he's pulling on classical literature, he's pulling on testimony and biography. And I think it's a helpful definition. An affectionate bond, he is as my own soul. Forged, two people coming together, their souls in it together. As they journey through life, so there's this element of time, this element of progression, ups and downs, with openness, this vulnerability, and trust. You're actually laying out that vulnerability to another person and inviting them in. What a gift friendship is. Don't you want that with more people? I want that. 
I want deeper bonds of affection. I want longer journeys of life with the same people. But I want us to see that this isn't just a nice thing, an optional extra, a cherry on the cake of the Christian life. Friendship, biblically defined, is actually a core purpose of the human life. It is woven in to your very creaturely existence. Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, after God has created everything and says it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good. Genesis 2, 18, you know this verse. It says, then the Lord God said, it is not good. And what's not good? That the man should be alone. You see, at this point in Genesis 2, it changes the way the creation narrative is taught. And we just have Adam in the garden. And he's got the garden and he's got God. So he's got paradise and he has the perfect quiet time every day. He's got no needs. He's got everything. Nothing goes wrong in his life. But God evaluates it and says, it's not good. Not that he doesn't have a wife, but that he is alone. So he says, God says, I will make a helper fit for him. Foundational to your humanity is your need for community, is your need for companionship, is your need for friendship. If you are alone, God would say that is not good. It's essential, not optional. And it's essential and not optional because it's actually fundamental to the divine being himself. God himself is not alone. A major difference between Christianity and Islam is that our God is one and three persons. God is a triune being, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and has always been Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He is eternal in his three being, in his three personhood. God has always been in community. God has always had friendship. And therefore, friendship is not a created thing. Friendship is not a thing that God gave as a gift to humans. Friendship is part of the divine nature. Makes God our God. Totally unique from all the other gods. And when God made us in his image, one of the parts of that image is that he created us male and female. He created us man and woman. He created us in community, in desperate need for community. Tim Keller has this really remarkable sermon on friendship that I found. And he says this, Adam was not lonely because he was imperfect, but because he was perfect. Think about that. Adam was lonely, maybe lonely is not the right word, but because he was perfect. The ache for friends is the one ache that's not the result of sin. This one ache that is a part of his perfection. God made us in such a way that we cannot enjoy paradise without friends. We cannot, enjoy our, we cannot enjoy our joy without human friends. He says, Adam had a perfect quiet time every day, 24 hours. He never had a dry one, and yet he needed friends. He desired 
friends. And so should you. So even did the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul, he, he, he wrote Romans. I mean, this guy. He evangelized the known world. He was bold and adventurous. He, he was taken up into the third heaven. Whatever that is, <laughs> Jesus Christ revealed himself to him personally. Yet, yeah, in house arrest, at the end of his life, at his most mature, you would assume, he was alone. He had Luke alone with him. And he writes to his dear friend Timothy, his dear son, and says, do your best to come to me soon. And then in verse 21 of 2 Timothy chapter 4, he repeats it. Do your best to come to me before winter. He desires his friend. He needs his friend. If you find yourself aching for friendship this morning, know this, that is good. That is part of God's design for you. That is part of God's will for you. That is part of God's plan for you. That you should be in friendship. But more than just friendship with one another, the greatest desire for friendship that is born in our soul is for that friendship with God himself. But as we know, if you continue in the Genesis story, that friendship is broken tragically. Adam and Eve choose their own sinful lusts and pleasures and they go after the knowledge of Satan and the knowledge of good and evil rather than knowing God himself. And the friendship between man and God is broken. They're separated from him, clothed and sent out of the garden. And the rest of the Bible, in one way, not the only way, but in one way is a story of God reconnecting himself with his people and making them friends again. But the barrier between our friendship and God is not just distance, because God is everywhere. It's not just difference. He's eternal and we are finite. The barrier is our sin. The greatest break between you and God, the reason you feel disconnected from God is because you are a sinner. And he hates sin. And unless that sin and that brokenness in you is removed and covered over, you will never be friends with God. You can have the best friendships here on earth, but you will not be friends with God. And that will matter for all of eternity. And that takes us to our text that I read. Jesus said, no longer do I call you servants. Oh, sorry. Jesus said, greater love has none than this. Verse 13. Then someone laid down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. Jesus offers full friendship with him again because he has paved the way through his sacrificial death on the cross to remove your sin and your guilt and your shame and all that blocks you from God. If you put your faith in him, that's taken away and then you're face to face with him again. Do you know that only Abraham and Moses are called God's friends in the, in the Old Testament? But now, through Christ, he calls you friend. And there is no friend like Jesus. So, I want us to see that friendship is not just an optional 
a desirous thing, a cherry on the top of the cake of life. Friendship is actually at the core purpose of ourselves as people. To desire friendship with other human beings and friendship with God. To be invited into the eternality of friendship. Tim Keller said that to need and to want deep friendships is not a sign of spiritual immaturity, but of maturity. It is not a sign of weakness. It's a sign of health. So, checking in. How much do you desire and cultivate and pursue friendship? Is it as central to your life as the Bible would have it? Or have you been too hurt, too let down, too confused by trying to make friendships that you've given up? Or are you too self-reliant and independent and you actually just operate at superficial level with 99% of people and you're not really looking for friends because you don't want to let them in? Well, God would say to us through his word, I want you to desire friendship. Pursue it. Go after it. But even if we desire it, it isn't always easy. And troubling so, it's not even easy here in this room, in the Christian church. The, the one place you would think, this is going to be automatic. This is just going to happen. I'm going to have deep and lasting, intimate friendships. The world can't provide. I get it. There's a separation, sin, and we have different values. But here, this is where we will have but sadly, it doesn't always work out like that, does it? And that leads us to point number two, discerning Christian friendship. Point number one was desiring it. Point number two is discerning it. And what I want to do here is I want us to try and figure out why that is the case. What goes on? How can we be friendly but not necessarily friends? And then in the third point, we'll look at how to be deep in those friendships. So in order to sort of discern why friendship doesn't happen automatically, I think we need to define our terms a bit better. Proverbs 18.24 gives us these three categories, which I think will help us to think about what's going on in this room. A man of many companions may come to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. So a man of many companions comes to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. So we've got three categories, companions, friends, and family. And what this proverb is teaching us is that you can have lots of people around you in your life, colleagues, friends, uh, neighbours, people at church, in your life group, in your growth group, companions. But unless you're, unless you're bent in on one another and committed to one another, well, then you might come to ruin. Then there's this other category, which is family. You know, your family has, if you're in trouble, your family has to step in. Unless you come from a very broken family, most families at some level will say, when there's a problem, okay, your brother will come in and help you. Even if he doesn't like you. Even if, you know, they'll do it because of duty, because of obligation. But then there's this third category, the friend. And there's a friend, and the difference with a friend and family is this, is a friend is voluntary. They don't have to do it. There's no social pressure. There's no rule. It, it, it's a choice. People that are your friends have chosen you. 
And even in adversity, they choose, I'm going to stick with you. Even in your sin, I'm going to stick with you. Even in all the ups and downs of life, they choose you. So what does that look like in the church? Well, in the church, we can have lots of companions, even in our life groups, even in our growth groups, where we're trying desperately as a church to do life together. We can have lots of people around, but they're not necessarily friends. We even use the language of family. Theologically, we are a family. We are united in Christ. We are sons and daughters of God and therefore brothers and sisters of one another. What that means, though, is not that we're necessarily friends. Because church family means that we ought to help one another and serve one another. We actually have duties as Christian family. You are my brother in Christ, therefore I must help you. Christian friendship goes beyond that and actually says, I choose you and I want you and I'm knitted to you. We also have another word, fellowship. You know, fellowship, it's like what we do after church, right? We have a coffee. Uh, the Greek word, it, it means sharing, um, sharing of your life and, and, and everything that goes on. And we are called to fellowship. So there's all these things that go along. So we have Christian family, and we are called to do fellowship and share our lives with one another. But still, that doesn't actually make us friends necessarily. We actually have to go a bit deeper. And I think Christian friendship really is a forging of those things all into one. That you have the theological reality that we're family. You have the theological principle that we must have fellowship and do all the one another's and share our life together. And then you f- we have a shared faith where we love the Lord Jesus and you put them together and over time and you commit to one another and you develop Christian friendship. Jonathan Holmes in his um, book and his article on friendship says, Biblical friendship exists when two or more people bound together by a common faith in Jesus Christ pursue him and his kingdom with intentionality and vulnerability. So there is something distinct about Christian friendship. What unites us is not our shared life stage. It's not our shared common interest. It's not our shared common background. It's not that, you know, for a marriage couple that we share a bed. Um, it's not even that we, we, we just share a faith. It's that we share a faith and a love for the Savior and a common mission and purpose, and we decide we're going to do it together. That's Christian friendship. He goes on to say that rather than serving as an end, in itself, so friendship is not the end, biblical friendship primarily serves to bring glory to Christ who brought us into friendship with the Father. Um, And so the, the end is not friendship. So don't aim at friendship. The aim is Christ and friendship is a means to that end of the glorification of Christ and the way that God gets things done in the world. And we, if you put your focus on Christ, you will build friends along the way. And more on that a little bit later. So we've got to define our terms, friends, family, <laughs> fellowship. How does it all work? Secondly, we, we need to discern the level of friendships that we will encounter. There's just creational realities. Jesus had 144, or he had the crowds, he had the 144, he had the 12, and he had the three. Jesus wasn't best mates with everyone. There's only one person, and it's self-proclaimed, but John says, I was the disciple who Jesus loved. There are levels of friendship, and that's okay. You can't be BFFs with everyone. Otherwise, there's no meaning to the term best. Uh, um, Joel Beakey and 
Michael Haken, and Michael Haken taught me at Pastors College, have a little pamphlet on friendship. It's very helpful. And they talk about, and it's sociological, but four kind of circles or concentric circles coming from the outside into what a friend is. And so I think it's helpful to just discern the levels of friendship we might have so that we set our expectations. Firstly, on the outer edge, there's, there's the currency of exchange. So there's people that you buy and sell from and people that you kind of interact with, but they're really they're mainly strangers. That's level Level one. Level two are um, allies, people that you agree to do stuff together with, soccer team, work colleagues, even church. We're allies. We're like, we love Jesus. We're going to make disciples. We're going to do church together. We're allies. But it doesn't necessarily mean we're friends or as a Jonathan and David. Then there's companions. They're the ones that... Um, you know, level three, that really we are friends. Like we're doing it, we're, we're, we share more of our life, we're willing to invest and invite in, all that type of stuff. And then there's level four, and that's confidants. That's the person, the very small number of people, and you might not actually have anyone, who actually knows the depth of who you are and knows you for how bad you actually are and chooses to love you nonetheless. Knowing that there are these kind of levels helps us just discern. At the very least, every Christian is an ally. It doesn't mean we're all friends, though. Well, we can be friendly, but it doesn't mean we're all friends. And then what, what we're trying to do is slowly, by God's grace and the ministry of the Spirit, come in and in with certain people deeper and deeper and deeper. So we have to discern those different levels. And thirdly, we need to discern the process. Within those levels, it, 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 friendship is not instant. You can't microwave it. You can't just click a button and there, hey, you might have an instant connection with someone, but to actually have a deep, true, Christian, biblical friendship, you, it just takes time. And the wisdom is, is that you probably don't rush in. Don't put all your eggs in one basket. Don't over-commit and over-expect. Lead out a little bit of information and lead out a little bit of your life and see if they reciprocate and see if they actually meet you, see if they're actually going to be a good friend. It takes time to build intimate friendships. It takes patience and it requires pain. The process of building a genuine, lasting friendship is painful because if you get close enough to another sinner, do you know what happens? <laughs> Sparks fly and not in a romantic sense. You will fight. You'll have problems. You'll have issues. And the true test is whether you can rebuke and correct, repent, restore, reconcile, and walk through. And sometimes you come to those issues and you're like, no, that friendship has to stop. And that's okay. So there's a process to it. And the, and the Psalms talk about this. Psalm 41 verse 9, even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. So don't think in pursuing friendship, it's going to be rosy and all work well. No, no, no. It's vulnerable. It's risky. You're laying your soul out there and someone might just crush it. So we've got to discern how friendship actually works. Okay, we're friendly we're family, we're called to fellowship, and hopefully, bit by bit by bit, in this church, you will develop true Christian biblical friendship. 
It won't happen automatically. It won't happen overnight. And it won't happen without pain. And we constantly make it hard because we keep growing, we keep starting new groups, we keep talking about planting churches and sending people overseas as missionaries. So we make it hard. It's actually hard to make friends. It'd be much easier just to go, all right, I found my five, we're done, we're going to have a Bible study for the next 45 years, and we're good. (laughs) That would be easy. But that's not because we're more than friends. We're called to Christ and his mission, and we share that together. Okay, so finally, how do we grow in and deepen our Christian friendships then? If we, if we know what it is, we know we're meant to desire it, how do we actually do it? Two insights from Tim Keller with our time remaining, which I don't have any time remaining. Um, <laughs> we're just going to keep going. Uh, he, he brings up, I won't read it, but in Acts chapter 20 and 21, you find that the Apostle Paul has been told by the Holy Spirit, he's going to go to Jerusalem. He's going to give the money that he's collected, go to Jerusalem and deliver it. But when he gets there, he doesn't know what's going to happen other than that persecution, imprisonment and beatings await him there. So he's, what does he start doing? He starts going back through all of his churches and visiting his friends because he's like, this could be the end. That's his instinct. He comes uh, to meet the Ephesian elders and they weep on the beach together in Acts chapter 20, verse 36. If you look at it later, they're crying because they're never going to see his face again. And he tells them, I'm labored with tears. I I didn't earn any money from you. I just did it. I worked and I gave everything. I did everything. And, And they're weeping and they're crying. They built a friendship. But then you get to Acts 21, and Paul gets on a boat and goes on various places, and you read it, and you're like, oh, it's just a travelogue. Like, okay, he went here, went there, met some people, that's cool. But one of the places he goes to is Tyre. And in Tyre, you realize that if you study Paul's journeys, he'd never actually been there. And when he gets to Tyre, he, he finds the Christians straight away, and they start to gather. And they, because they share the same faith, they welcome him into their home, and they eat meals together, they spend a week together. Even some of the Tyrenians say to Paul, don't go to Jerusalem. They even rebuke him. They even confront him. They, they share that kind of level of intimacy and friendship. Uh, and they have this time where the whole of the Christian community walks Paul out to his boat. They kneel on the beach together and pray. He'd been there six days. <laughs> Fast friendship. And Paul, uh, Tim Keller makes these two helpful ways of thinking about friendship. Number one, Christian friendships are discovered not just made. Christian friendships are discovered, not just made. And here's my summary of that. Christian friendships are built upon a shared love for Jesus and a shared love for what Jesus loves. When you love Christ and love what Christ loves and then you find someone who loves Christ and loves what Christ loves, boom, you can just discover a friendship because you have the most essential and important parts of your life all aligned at the top level. That's why I can go to Liberia and feel like these guys are my friends and my brothers because we love Christ and we love what Christ loves and I'm thinking about them, I'm praying for them, I'm taking them home in my heart. I can't plan that. It's just discovered. There's a mystery to friendship. God is sovereign and he puts people in our paths and some people we connect with, some people we don't. But the reality for Christians is that when Christ is the center and object of your life, you will be able to make Christian friends. If you make friendship the goal of your life, you won't be able to make Christian friends because the thing that you want so much is friendship and the thing they want so much is Christ. 
And so you don't actually share the most important things. You must love Christ the most. And the reason why some of you might not have deep Christian friendships is you don't actually love Christ enough. And you don't love what Christ loves enough. And therefore, you constantly feel a bit out of place in church. They all seem to be tight. I don't seem to be tight. There's no one my age. There's no one my stage. I get that. There's creational realities. But if you love Jesus with all you got and you find an old granny who's 82 and loves Jesus with all she's got, you can become friends. It may not be the same as Saul and Jonathan, but uh, uh, Jonathan and David, but you can become friends. So do you love Jesus and love what Jesus loves? That is the fastest track to building Christian friendship in this church. Secondly, though, Tim Keller makes this observation, and I thought it was brilliant. Christian friendships are made, not just discovered. So they're discovered, not just made, and they're made, not just discovered. It sounds contradictory, but it's not. The reality is, is the Bible teaches us how to become friends. Read the book of Proverbs teaches you how to be a good friend. The reality is, is that you have to cultivate, you have to invest, you have to do things. The, the Christians entire didn't become friends with Paul because they're like, oh, here's Paul. He loves Jesus. Cool. We saw him once. Now we're forever friends. No, they invited him into their home. They spent their money. They cooked food. They hung out together. They walked all the way from their city to the beach. They knelt. They sacrificed. You will not make you might have an automatic connection, but you will not have a long-lasting friendship unless you make it happen. We have to pursue it. Like a rope. If you, you know, there's different strands of rope. And one image I read in a book is like, if you do all these various things, it's like you're building more and more strands into your rope and you're making the rope stronger. There's so much practical wisdom out there how to make friends more effectively. Let me just share a few things from that Acts 21. Share your feelings. These Christians on the Ephesian beach and uh, in the Tyrrhenian beach, they were crying, they were weeping. They were sharing their real soul, what's actually, what they really feel. Do you share your real fears, hopes and dreams with anyone? Share your things. They were hospitable. You just have to share. You're sharing, you're giving, you're making meals, you're giving away things. You're like, hey, I just bought you a present. Why? Because you're my friend. It's not your birthday. It's nothing. I just want to share. David's a good example of that. David keeps on giving me shirts. I love David. <laughs> He's like, we're friends, and now I get to wear cool shirts because David's like, I just, just give you a friend. I just give you a present. You obviously have to share your faith. Um, it goes beyond shared interests. Share your decisions too. Uh, these Christians were weeping with Paul because they didn't want him to go and they told him. They weren't just having these secret meetings like, we don't think Paul should go. Yeah, we don't think Paul should go. He really shouldn't go. Oh, hey, Paul. Uh, yeah, have a good trip. It's going to go so badly. No, they, they told him. They said, don't go. You're going you're to be beaten. We don't want you to go. And Paul said, no, I must go. I disagree with you. The Spirit has told me to go. And they said, okay, we'll pray for you and bless you and agree to disagree and we'll see you in heaven. Are we really friends if we decide to buy a property in another part of the country and don't ask anyone in our life if it's a good idea? Are we really friends if we just change jobs or change education or change what we're doing or change our boyfriend and girlfriend or change anything about our major parts of our life without consulting anyone? Friends are going to share decisions because it's a part of sharing your soul. 
And you have to share your time. Time is our most precious commodity. We'd much rather give money. Like giving money to ICM is easy. It's like, boom, I can just give. Whoa, there you go. There's money. But you say, hey, I want you to spend the next week working on ICM. Like, whoa, I don't know. Because <laughs> time is the currency of love in our culture. And if you spend time with people, you're saying, I really love you. If you want to build deep Christian friendship in this church, you have to calendar it. you got to put it in. you got to leave margin and space so that when someone says, hey, do you want to hang out? And I'm always saying this, in three months. It's like, no, <laughs> what, what are we doing? You're just never going to have a deep, intimate friendship. Uh, now, not ever, but you know what I mean. And sometimes you're separated by distance and space and the circumstance, all of that. I get it, but share your time. Okay. So in order to deepen our Christian friendships, we must realize that they're discovered, not just made. Christian friendships are built upon a shared love for Jesus and a shared love for what Jesus loves. And Christian friendships are made, not just discovered. They are deepened through intentional, sacrificial, sustained effort by the grace of God. In a moment, we're going to do a great act of Christian fellowship and family. We're going to take the Lord's Supper together. Uh, we're going to drink of one cup and, and eat of one loaf as a sign that we share the most important thing together, the Lord Jesus Christ. We are family. We're connected by the blood of the Lamb. And, and it's a sign not just of our Jesus and me, but Jesus and we. It's unity. And if there's anyone in this room that you are currently in disfellowship with, you've broken down your relationship, you've hurt them, you've sinned against them, you've actually not friends, and you haven't reconciled or sought reconciliation, uh, Jesus says um, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 23 to 24, leave your gift there before the altar. First, go and be reconciled to your brother. Then come and offer your gift. Perhaps you need to abstain from communion as the sign of fellowship, until you've made it right with that friend. Because how can we say we're one, but you're out of my life? I've got nothing to do with you. Now, you can't always reconcile because it takes two. But perhaps today you need to pursue reconciliation with someone. Sometimes friendships are discovered. They have to be made and sometimes they have to be remade or repaired. But the most important thing as we take this cup and this bread is to know that we have no greater friend than Jesus. We will let each other down. We promise much in this church. We will fail to deliver. That's just reality. I'm sorry. You will not find the most satisfying, deep, intimate friendship you can have here in this place. Only with Christ. He's the only one that will love you even in the worst of who you are. He demonstrated that on the cross. He knows all about the worst parts of you and he loves you just the same. And so I implore you, love and be best friends with Jesus. And then out of the overflow of that welcoming, inclusive, beautiful friendship and communion, pursue friendship with others. Welcome them into your life and bit by bit by bit, knit your soul together with them and do the journey together. Let's pray.
and then we'll hand... Actually, no, let's not pray. Let's hand out the communion. Now, that's an instinctive thing. Let's hand out the communion. Don't take it just yet. We'll take it all as one. But as we do, just reflect upon the message. And if we could put the verse, John chapter 15, verse 12 to 15 on the screen. Consider Christ your true and greatest friend. And if you are not yet a friend with Jesus, uh, this meal actually isn't for you. This meal is a sign of his friendship, his communion. So if you haven't yet become a Christian, and even if you've got the bread and stuff in your hand, just don't take it. Consider whether or not you want to become his friend. Eating that bread, drinking that cup, doesn't make you a friend with Jesus. You have to repent of your sin and commit your life to him. Then you're his friend. And then you can share a meal with him. Jesus said, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. <laughs> what love? Take this bread that represents that life laid down for you and eat it in enjoyment of his friendship. Look around the room. We are his friends. We are his friends because of the blood that he shed. Drink this and enjoy his friendship with you. You are my friends if you do what I command you. Let me pray for us. Uh, and what we're going to do is we're not going to sing the final song. However, we are going to sing the chorus a cappella. So I'm not going to bother getting the band up, but I just want to sing it. Because the lyric in the chorus says, Once your enemy, now seated at your table. And I just think that would be a fitting way for us to end. So 
Um, would you please stand and pray with me, and then if we could have the chorus on the screen, and I will lead us in song, and that will be a frightful moment. <laughs> Our Father in heaven, we thank you that we have friendship with you through your Son, Jesus Christ. Would you help us to love him and love what he loves? And as a result, would you help us to discover the beginnings and the deepenings of Christian friendship here in this room? Lord, for those who are hurting, who've been hurt, who know the pain of broken friendship, Lord, would you help them to desire it again? Lord, I pray and ask as well that you would help us to, by grace-motivated effort, go after one another and prove that we are your disciples of of your son Jesus by loving one another, making other people more important in our life than ourselves. And Lord, would you weave together deep and beautiful, intimate Christian friendship in our midst. Let me pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.